1: From KQBD Public Radio in San Francisco, I'm Mina Kim. Coming up on Forum, Senator Tammy Duckworth was on Joe Biden's short list of vice presidential running mates and recently did not rule out running for president herself. The biracial daughter of a Thai Chinese mother and white American father, Duckworth is Illinois' first Asian American senator and the first senator to give birth while in office. As a teenager, she sold flowers on street corners to avoid hunger and homelessness. And she lost both legs when the helicopter she was co-piloting was shot down in Iraq. A conversation with Senator Duckworth. Join us. This is Forum. I'm Nina Kim. Many know that Illinois Senator Tammy Duckworth is a wounded warrior. She lost both legs when the Black Hawk helicopter she was co-piloting was shot down in Iraq some 16 years ago. But what we learn from her new memoir, titled Every Day is a Gift, is that Tammy Duckworth's childhood struggles prepared her to deal with her life-changing injuries and the challenges that a life in politics would bring. Senator Duckworth, welcome to Forum.
2: It's good to be on. Thanks for having me.
1: Well, really appreciate having you on. And, you know, as I think about the challenges of a life in politics, as I said in the the introduction, I I imagine that one challenge you did not anticipate as a senator was in January having to barricade yourself in your office when a mob of pro-Trump insurrectionists breached the U.S. Capitol. I want to ask you about this day because I read that you were heading to the Senate chamber to make remarks about the electoral vote. And when you heard about a breach, you considered for a moment continuing to head to the chamber since the situation at that point wasn't entirely clear. But ultimately, you decided to head back to your office. Why, why did you head back? What were the calculations?
2: Well, I was actually in the tunnels beneath the um, Senate chambers uh, at about 2.30. I was supposed to speak at 2.50, and the breach happened at a quarter after. So the Capitol Police, as I was in the tunnel, said, "Um, we've locked down the main uh, Senate building. You can still continue and meet up with the other senators. You can make it to them, and then you'll just all get evacuated at the same time. At which point, being a wheelchair user, um, I knew that I would just be more problem for the Capitol Police if they had to hustle 100 senators and all the staff off of the floor. And I also know that there's very limited access on and off the Senate floor. So I said, you know what? I'm going to barricade myself here. Um, I'm going to I'm perfectly fine defending myself. And I've got my two staffers with me and we're going to stay in a secure location. You guys go ahead and come back and get me when everybody's safe. So for me, it was just really Knowing, you know, just situational awareness, something I learned in the army, <laughs> and knowing that I would have been more trouble to the police at Capitol Police had I gone into the chamber because they're very limited ways out. In fact, only um one or two ways out for uh, a wheelchair user. And in fact, when they eventually evacuated the Capitol, they had to run downstairs, and I would never have been able to have done that with the other senators.
1: So you were thinking about the complications it would create for the Capitol Police. I mean, Senator, um... Did you have a sense at that point that this was going to be bad?
2: (laughs) No, not at all. I thought we would just be... Um, Locked down inside the chambers. It never ever occurred to me that there would be a breach of that magnitude. That um, you know, they the people would actually, while carrying the American flag, like so many of them were, be destructive towards our nation's capital. This beautiful historic building, um, and you know that had not had not fallen since uh, the French, you know, since the uh, um, the the war of eighteen twelve. And so it's just crazy that that happened. And in fact, I was you know, my response to it has been more of disappointment and anger than fear. Um, I just couldn't believe that people who called themselves patriots would, you know, mount an attack against our own capital.
1: And some are trying to continue to call them patriots. I, I do remember hearing just that it really affected you deeply to learn that several people involved in the insurrection were actively serving in the military or or had, were were veterans. What was that like for you what did that mean to you
2: um it was a betrayal that's how it how it felt to me how do you swear an oath to defend this nation and how do you serve in uniform online to the left and to the right of other people in uniform who also some of whom laid down their lives to defend our democracy how do you turn around and become an insurrectionist and attack our own nation's capital it was, it, it was just a betrayal of everything um, that one stands for as a soldier. You know, For me, having been in the Army, I, I, it was very hard for me to comprehend watching images of people with the same American flag I wore on my uniform in battle to use that same flag to attack our own nation. It, it, betrayal is the best word that I can come up with.
1: You put at the very beginning of your book, the U.S. Army warrior ethos, which is I will always place the mission first. I will never accept defeat. I will never quit. I will never leave a fallen comrade. Why did you put that in your book?
2: It's the core of who I am as a person, um, the warrior ethos is what saved my life in iraq and gave me every day that i've had ever since you know the book is called every day is a gift because literally every day of my life since november 12th of 2004 has been a gift and i talk about how the men who saved me didn't give up they lived that warrior ethos and they did not leave me behind and every day since has been me trying to live up to that um you know, in the book, I, I speak at length about the camaraderie between soldiers and and yes. what it was that got us through that, through that horrific day and 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 every day since. So um, it was important to me to have that warrior ethos. It was hanging above my hospital bed for the time that I was recovering. It, it gave me strength then, and it hangs above my Senate desk now.
1: You mentioned they didn't leave you because they they thought you might be dead.
2: They did. Um, Dan Milberg, Chief Warrant Officer Dan Milberg, the pilot in command of my aircraft, is a police officer and an EMT in his regular in his regular civilian, civilian life. And um, he looked over and he said, Tammy, the bottom half of your body was gone. You were just torso. And he thought I was dead, um, but he refused to leave my body behind. And the I, I think readers will find the passages like in the book about the shoot down and the struggle to get me out of there. Pretty gruesome, but I wanted to be very upfront about it because I wanted people to understand what my, my buddies went through to save me. Um, and, and how that drives me today because they wouldn't give up on me. Then I can't give up now in everything that I do.
1: And as I mentioned, and just to remind listeners, you were in a Black Hawk helicopter, you were co-pilot during the Iraq war You were shot down by a rocket-propelled grenade that landed in your lap. Is there anything else that you want to say about that incident that you remember or about your recovery? You do describe it at length in the book. But I wonder for listeners, what are some of the things that, as you went to write it down again for a memoir like this, really struck you?
2: Well, I learned a lot more about that shootdown day. I, my memory was wiped a little bit by the drugs they gave me in the emergency room. Yes. It's a side effect of some of the drugs, and they do it on purpose to help you know uh, help with the recovery process. So, in the process of writing the memoir, I actually got in touch with a lot of the doctors and nurses who were there that day who treated me that i never met that i never heard from and so i actually was able to fill in the blanks for a lot of what was missing and it was just amazing what happened in those days and how heroic our everyday soldiers sailors and airmen are the fact that they had to wake up people to donate blood because they you know they they used up all the blood they had um, trying to revive me and then guys and gals willingly you know woke up to come donate blood to save a total stranger um, they, you know and, and and the the nurse who intubated me and put me under he said to me um, and, I, and I, I I quote him in the book that the memory of me has haunted him for the last 15 years uh, the last my last words to him and knowing that I've done well has helped him because he never knew of all the soldiers and you know that he treated how many actually survived once they left his his emergency room and went on to the next phase of care. So it's been really, um, you know, yes, you've got the grueling part of the story, but I hope people will feel the uplifting part of, um, you know, in, in the book as well.
1: Yes. You do focus a lot on that. And you focus a lot on what others did for you and how much you, you strive to live up to the things that you feel they did your left leg was amputated below the knee, your right leg was inches long. I understand that you, you decided that you wanted to um, fly again. And, and so a lot of the decisions that you made around your amputation was so that you could fly again. First, what do you love about flying? Why is it that that was what you held onto for so long?
2: Well, it was about going back to my unit and being who I was. If you ask me today, who I am at my core, and I write this in a book, at my core, I'm an army helicopter pilot. I'm a grunt pilot. I'm not, <laughs> I'm not, you know, I'm not a, I'm not a flyboy. I'm not a, I'm not a high in the sky soaring, you know, you know, reaching out my hand to touch the face of God, like like the poem says. I'm not that. I'm a, I'm a helicopter pilot, and I am part of a crew, and I love that. And if you talk to any wounded warrior in their bed at any army hospital, and you ask them, what do you want to do, soldier? What do you want to do, Marine? Every single one of them will say the same thing that I said, I want to go back to my unit, sir. I want to go back to my unit, ma'am. When can I go? When can I get up out of this bed? When are you going to let me go back to duty? Every single one of them says the same thing. And that's where I was. I wanted to go back to my unit. I felt like I was cheating my buddies by being safe at Walter Reed while they were still downrange getting shot at. And I didn't want to be at Walter Reed anymore. I wanted to be downrange with them. And I I tried to get that across in the book so that our readers, you know, the readers can understand the spirit, the spirit of our men and women in uniform, that this is what they're about. They never give up. And um, it was important to me as part of my recovery to have a goal. And, And that was my mission to get back to my unit.
1: And as we will learn uh, as this conversation continues after the break, that you realize that so much of that desire, that need, and the things that you endured in terms of your recovery really were in many ways a result of or that you were capable of doing so because of childhood struggles that you overcame. We're talking with U.S. Senator Tammy Duckworth, Democratic Uh, Senator for Illinois. Her new memoir is Every Day is a Gift, and I want to invite you, our listeners, to join the conversation. What questions do you have for Senator Duckworth about her life, her experiences in the Iraq War, or her path to the Senate? If you're a military veteran, do Senator Duckworth's experiences resonate with you? Give us a call, 866-733-6786. Again, 866-733-6786. You can also get in touch on Twitter or Facebook at KQED Forum, or you can email your questions to forum at kqed.org. More with Senator Tammy Duckworth after the break. I'm Mina Kim. Welcome back to Forum. I'm Mina Kim. We're talking to Illinois Democratic Senator Tammy Duckworth about her life and work, which she describes in her new memoir, Every Day is a Gift. And if you'd like to join the conversation, you can call us at 866-733-6786, 866-733-6786. What are your questions or thoughts for Senator Duckworth? You can get in touch on Twitter or Facebook at KQED Forum or email us forum at kqed.org. And Catherine tweets, would love to know whether Senator Duckworth, as a mixed race person, ever struggles with identifying and aligning with Asian American social and political circles. How does she navigate this?
2: Senator Duckworth? Well, I do. You know, it's funny because I grew up in Southeast Asia post-Vietnam War as an Amorasian child where my Asian cousins saw me as mostly white. Um, And then here now that I'm back home in the States, uh, and I live, you know, I I live for a while out in uh, rural Illinois, I was seen as Asian. And and the people didn't see my white half. So I do struggle. And I did struggle growing up where I never fit in anywhere. There's this whole outsider status to me, no matter where I was. When I was in Asia, I was an outsider because I was half white. And when I'm in the States, I'm an outsider uh, because I'm half Asian. And that's the struggle that AAPIs have, been, have in this country and have forever because we're 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 a group that's always seen as the other group. Um, and and you know, I remember being in uniform, uh, wearing the nation's flag on my shoulder, wearing an army uniform, and having fellow Americans ask me, "So where are you from, really?" It's like, "I'm from here. What are you talking about? Do you do you not see my uniform and 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 the stars and stripes on my shoulders?" So, I've had the same issues um, as. APIs in this country with often being seen as an outsider or an other. And it's even come up in debates. I talk about it in the book where, um, you know, being half Asian has been used against me by multiple opponents in um, elections where they try to portray me as not quite American enough. That
1: incessant foreignness, how do you feel like that contributes to the attacks that Asian Americans are experiencing now?
2: Oh, very much so. Um, I, I, you know, I don't think as a society, we feel that Asian Americans are truly a minority and are deserving of protection or special status. Um, I think there's a real um, belief that Asian Americans are that model minority myth, and that we don't really need help because we're all doctors and, and attorneys and accountants, and, and we really don't need help. Whereas Um, We know that AAPI, um, hate crimes against AAPIs have been on an increase, especially this past year because of the coronavirus. In fact, um, hate crimes against Asian-Americans have increased by um, over 150 percent in our nation's largest cities. Um, And we know also that hate crimes against Asian-Americans, two thirds of them are conducted against women. Sorry, that's an ambulance going by outside the uh, building. It's okay.
1: Hey, this time... (laughs) Uh, where we're all yeah. basically remote broadcasting these days, too, and interviewing remotely as well. <laughs> that
2: was, that happens a lot. The are all closed, but it still comes through. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> but, you know, it, it, that that figure, you know, the 3,000 additional hate crimes against AAPIs this past year, two-thirds of them were against Asian women in particular. Yes.
1: I was so struck by the story of how, so in in Thailand, when you were living there, you were constantly looked down on by Southeast Asians by ties for being half Asian because many half Asian kids were abandoned by white US servicemen or US servicemen of other races as well your dad stayed and while you struggled with this identity of being half half Asian and treated differently he was treated uh, as as basically sort of like a big man a big a big great american man in Southeast Asia and i wonder what that taught you about about what applies to you uh as a half white American person and and what applies to a man like your father.
2: Yeah, I mean I think there's a lot of um American but also European men in particular that, you know, go to Asia, especially in that in that in the 60s and 70s, where they gain a status from just from the color of their skin, of being Caucasians um in a part of the world where you know, it's it, it's very class conscious. So they were almost seen as above everybody else. And my dad enjoyed that. And, and it's probably why he stayed in Asia, you know, for most of his adult life, once he um, uh, finished his service in Vietnam. Um, uh, he was a big man in Asia, um, whereas back home in the United States, he would have just been another regular Joe. Uh, and I talk about this struggle in the book about how I got status from my dad, but then I also was biracial. And so, It's funny, you know, because you have my dad and my mom. My mom was scorned um, because, you know, she married an American, um, but my dad was respected. So you're like, well, they're both my parents. I'm the product of both. I have each of them in me. This is, you know, this is an oxymoron. How can both be true?
1: And as you you say, your dad did not want to leave, but ultimately he couldn't find consistent work in Southeast Asia. So your dad, your brother, and you went to the U.S. actually without your mom at the time because you couldn't afford the fourth ticket. And you went to Hawaii where you lived on food stamps, but, but often went hungry because your dad was still struggling to find work. As a teenager, you really carried the financial weight of your family on your shoulders for a period of time. Can you describe some of the things that you did to try to keep yourselves fed? And also you were so close to homelessness. Senator Duckworth.
2: Yes. Yes, Uh, I am.
1: Yes. Sorry. That's okay. Do you Um, you mind describing some of the things that that you did to, to help your family at that time?
2: Yes, of course. My, my father, um, lost his job, the company he was working for overseas was sold and the, and the new owners just, you know, decided to go with someone uh, that cost less than he did. Um, and and he went through a period of about five years where he couldn't find a job. And so we descended into poverty. We, we, we went through everything in our entire life savings. Um, I talk in the book about having to cash in my little passbook savings account with 300 bucks in it um, and giving that and, and with that money, we bought the plane tickets back to the States and the closest part of the States we could get to was Hawaii. And people think of of Hawaii as, you know, this paradise vacation land, but for those struggling there, living on the margins um, it was, it's a, it's a place of great challenges. I, you know, after school would go and I worked on the beach handing out flyers to tourists selling cruises and booze I, cruises, yes. booze cruises or, or dinner cruises, depending on who the um, you know the target was. <laughs> um, and then I also, um, you know, uh, you could go through the garbage cans in the tourist areas, and you could find old like goggles and fins that tourists had bought for their vacation would throw away as they were leaving the islands. And I used those, and I would scout scour the beaches and the water for money. Um, I talk about how you know in the book I think I say. How rich are you that you would go swimming with money in your pockets? And so I could always find a buck or two floating in the water. Um, I, you know, I, I hustled. I played volleyball <laughs> for money. I would act all innocent, and and I teamed up with another local, and you know, we would go listen. We'll play, we'll play you two guys and we want, you know, us, one guy, one gal against you two guys. You guys will win. no, you know, But we, we want to play. And then we would hustle for money. Um, <laughs> so You'd bet them. Bet, <laughs> I bet would, on would the bet win. them, yeah. <laughs> yeah. And, and we would win because, I you know, I, I actually was a varsity vo- volleyball player in, in, in high school. And then, you know, and then I sold whatever I needed to do, I did to help put food on the table and keep a roof over our heads. Um, to this day, let me tell you. Do not get between me and a penny on the ground because I will go pick it up. I am not embarrassed. I am not shy. I will roll over you with my wheelchair to get you out of my way to pick up that penny. And I've done it. And And I'm never going to be embarrassed. I know the value of a penny. I never worked harder in my life. Um, I say this in the book that I did when we were the poorest.
1: Yes. And then it was shocking to learn later that your father actually rejected his disability benefits, um, his army yes. His army benefits in that time, in part because of pride, but also it sounds like it's not something that's terribly unusual among veterans.
2: It's not unusual. And I, I deal with this to this day. I tell veterans, please sign up for your benefits. And they all say this, and I'm like, oh, I'm doing okay. I'm not that sick. Just leave it for my buddies. The, those other guys have it worse. It's it's this military mentality of watching out for your for your buddies and taking care of each other. So they turn down benefits for themselves, not realizing that there's enough benefits for everyone and that you should claim your benefits because if you're not claimed, um, the VA doesn't know you're out there. I'll give you an example. In Illinois, the VA thinks there are 800,000 veterans because that's how many have actually registered for benefits. But our state government knows that there are at least 1.2 million veterans because that's how many individuals have actually applied for veterans' license plates. So there's a difference of 400,000 individuals just in one state alone that are not claiming their benefits. So when VA goes to build a hospital, they think that v- that Illinois has 400,000 fewer veterans than it does. And mm-hmm. so that extra hospital does not get built in Illinois. And so I'm constantly having to educate my fellow veterans, like, listen, just go signed up. If not for yourself, then for your spouse, because that's what happened to my family. And, and I talk about this in a book that after my dad passed, my mom got no benefits. Um, and, and so she had to move out of their house that they were renting because she, her income dropped substantially once he passed because he never applied for his benefits.
1: Let me go to some callers. Let's go to Rich in San Jose. Hi, Rich.
3: How do you like that? Hello?
1: Hi. Go right yes, ahead. You're hi, on Rich. the air.
3: Yeah. Hi. How are you today? Um, gosh, I don't even know where to begin. Uh, adoration would be the first place. I'd have to say you are what makes America great. You are It makes me hopeful that, you know, people can see that immigrants are worth something. My mother came from South America to this country at the age of 21, had me. And I'm fortunate to be an American, grateful to be an American, the best country in the world. But you have to work for it. It doesn't come for free. And you can't just stand up and say, I'm an American. You actually have to go out there and do something for it. And, you know, I didn't serve. And I can't even begin to tell you how grateful I am that you did. And I tell my kids, anytime you see a service person, you walk up and you shake their hand. They deserve your respect and adoration. Rich, That's all I got no. to say. Thank you very much.
2: Thank, thank you, Rich. Yeah, no, no, thank you. And let me just say that there are many ways to serve. Uh, I, ser- I chose to pick up a rifle and serve in uniform, but you can serve by picking up a hammer and volunteering for Habitat for Humanity. You can serve by picking up a piece of chalk and and helping tutor kids or teach. You can serve by helping volunteer at a local food bank. You know, this book was really, there's two things about this book I hope people um, keep in mind when they read it. Number one, this book is a love letter to my nation um, because I want to show people how precious this country and all that she stands up for and all the opportunities that she have. If a little half Asian girl can grow up to be a United States Senator, to, can go from food stamps and, and being hungry to being one of a hundred, anybody can do it. Um, the other thing is my daughter, Abigail, uh, is six now. And she has started to ask me, why was it that I lost my legs? Because she's hmm. just understanding that I'm different than other moms. And she wants to know why I can't run alongside her to teach her to ride a bike or why is it I couldn't help walk beside her baby sister to teach her baby to walk and why why did I do that I said well mommy was in this and it was a soldier honey and she said well couldn't someone else have been a soldier couldn't couldn't someone else have done it and I that's what motivated me to write the book because I want her to know that what I did was worth it that this country this democracy was worth the sacrifice, is worth the sacrifice. And as divided as we are today, this democracy is still worth fighting for. It's still worth all of us trying to find a way back together. So I hope when people read this book that they get that out of it, that our, our less than perfect union is worth fighting for so that it can become that more perfect union that we all hope that it can be one day.
1: First, just incredible and Questions from your six year old daughter and so honest, right? In this sense of wh- yeah. why couldn't someone else have done that? Um, which I think is so, so fascinating. We're talking with Illinois Democratic Senator Tammy Duckworth and Joel writes, nice to see an Iraq vet serving. Spent my time over there. Al Assad airbase. Never let them forget where you came from. Huge fan. Keep fighting. Robert writes, is that... As the Republican Party at all levels pushes measures nationwide to reduce voting participation based on the lie of voter fraud, will Senator Duckworth do whatever it takes to help pass the For the People Act, S-1, and the John Lewis Voting Rights Act, even if it means ending the filibuster? Are there any bills more important in her opinion? Senator Duckworth, what do you think about what Robert is asking you here?
2: I think it's a very valid question, and I... I... I would break the filibuster to pass those two bills, the John Lewis Act and the the Voting Rights Act. I I think that it is that vital to our democracy to protect people's rights to vote. Um, It's more important to me uh, to protect people's rights to vote than it is to protect the rights of, um, you know, 99 other senators to filibuster. Remember that the filibuster rule came about as a result of the Jim Crow era. It's not in the constitution. It was created so that people in the minority, in this case, um, uh, leaders in the South could oppose a lot of the progress from the civil rights movement. So it's really based in racism. And at this point, uh, you know, I, I hope we go to a talking filibuster first, which is what more people think about when they think about a filibuster, the, the Mr. Smith goes to Washington, stand on the floor and, 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 and speak until you can't speak anymore. Um, if we go to that, then I think that would be a big step forward, but I would support filibuster reform in order to pass voting rights um, protections. Yes.
1: Let me go to caller Dave in San Francisco. Hi, Dave.
0: Are you um, first comment is my mom was one of the first doctors to graduate from Harvard medical school. I'm, um, so uh, proud of what you uh, achieved, Tammy, and, um, you know, really showing uh, people like my daughter, 15 year old, what she could really achieve in, in the world. So it's uh, incredible what you've achieved and um, what you've overcome. And so the question I have is uh, Republicanism just seems so collapsed right now and so close to what we might term as fascism. And do you see Do you really honestly see negotiating partners? Um, in the Republican Party and what, what can be done. And any comments on that, I'd appreciate
2: Do Dave, thanks. Senator? Well, I will tell you I was deeply disappointed when not a single Republican senator voted for the American Rescue Plan. How do you vote against sending $1,400 to Americans who are struggling to keep a roof over their families' heads and put food on the table? How do you vote against money for our schools so that they can Um, clean our schools and get our kids back to in-person education. I I was so disappointed that not a single Republican voted for that. Something that we desperately needed for the country to recover from this virus. Um, On the other hand, I will tell you last week, I did just pass a bill out of this um, committee, a water bill, a water infrastructure bill that includes additional funds for fixing sewers and getting lead piping out of the uh, infrastructure And that was unanimous. All the Dems and all the Republicans in committee voted for it. So I I have some hope there. Um, I will tell you, though, that over the last four years I've been in the Senate, I've become much more pessimistic than I was when I started. I always said before Donald Trump that I can work with anyone uh, as long as as they love this country as much as I do. I sincerely do not believe that Donald Trump loves this country as much as I do. Um, And I hope that that is not true for my colleagues on the other side of the aisle. But boy, it's hard when 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 you go to talk to someone and say, well, why won't you vote for this? And they and they don't have a good answer for you and they run away. I'll keep trying, though. I'll keep trying because, you know, we, we did get the water bill out of committee unanimous. So maybe there's some hope there.
1: We're talking with Illinois Democratic Senator Tammy Duckworth. We're hearing about her experience as a combat veteran, her experiences as a senator, and about her childhood, which she describes in her new memoir, Every Day is a Gift. What questions do you have for Senator Duckworth about her life, her experiences, her legislative priorities that you'd like to see Senate Democrats advance? And if you were a military veteran, do Senator Duckworth's experiences resonate with you. 866-733-6786 is the number to call. Get in touch on Twitter or Facebook at KQED Forum or email your questions to forum at kqed.org. More after the break. Stay with us. I'm Mina Kim. This is Forum. I'm Mina Kim. Senator Tammy Duckworth lost both legs when the Black Hawk helicopter she was co-piloting was shot down in Iraq some 16 years ago. In her new memoir, Every Day is a Gift, Duckworth recounts how her challenging childhood prepared her to deal with these devastating injuries as well as a life in politics your questions for senator duckworth 866-733-6786 is the number to call get in touch on twitter or facebook at kqed forum email us forum at kqed.org and let me go to peter in palo alto next hi peter join
3: us hi um thanks for taking the time with us um so my mom is disabled and she has a spinal cord injury And I just wanted to relate to one of the big pieces of legislation that you've worked on that helped helped her, which is uh, she's lost her uh, scooter in the process of flying. And you successfully pushed for regulation um, to make sure that airlines report when this happens. Can you talk about your work in this area and kind of what you see as the future for um, issues that um, uh, people with disabilities face?
2: Peter, thanks. Mm -hmm.
1: Senator Duckworth?
2: Oh, thank you. I'm so glad that made a difference in your life. Yes, I'm so proud of that. So folks might not realize this, but airlines have have always been required to report um, their on-time arrival rates, right? And and how many bags they've lost. Um, So that when you go to buy a ticket and you're looking at, say, I want to take this flight, uh, you know, to Chicago or Chicago to LA or Chicago to San Fran, um, and you're going to say, well, this one is, you know, always 70% It's got a 70% on-time rate. I'm going to go with a 90% on-time rate. Well, they never had to report that for how they handled assistive medical devices, wheelchairs and the like. So you never knew which airline was worse at handling a wheelchair. And I've had my wheelchair broken by the airlines before. And so I got really frustrated. So I passed legislation that requires them to report how many wheelchairs they've lost, how many wheelchairs they've broken, so that you as a consumer knows, okay, I'm not going to fly that airline. They're notorious. For, you know, they have really bad record for handling wheelchairs. And then to force them to also change the training, how they train the people that handle your baggage so that they can handle wheelchairs better. Um, but, you know, the legislation is really a testament to the need for diversity in elected office. Hmm. Until I showed up and, and was, you know, uh, in the Senate, we didn't push that through because there you know, really hadn't been anybody. Well, there was Max Cleland before me. But, um, you know, it's, it's why having people with those experiences at the table helps to pass really good laws um, when there's diversity among lawmakers.
1: I think in many ways you're responding to this listener's point. Maggie writes, please thank Senator Duckworth for her service and sacrifice for our country. How does Senator Duckworth's experiences affect her policy making? Senator Duckworth, as we touched on earlier, attacks on Asian American and Pacific Islanders are continuing unabated. We have new horrific videos surfacing almost daily, one from New York now, which has been... Even doubly traumatizing because bystanders really did nothing as a woman was attacked. Um, What can and must be done at the federal level to, to address this? Can this be solved legislatively?
2: Well, some of it can be solved legislatively. A lot of it can be done um, just by the administration. And I know that uh, President Biden is working to do that. I will tell you two things that I have asked for. I've, I've sent two letters, one to FBI Director Christopher Wray and one to our Attorney General Merrick Garland asking for a couple of things. One, we need data on the actual number of hate crimes committed against AAPIs in this country. We know that it is... Um, that that the rates are severely underreported. You'll see time and time again um, what is a hate crime actually reported simply as vandalism or a robbery or a mugging as opposed to an actual hate crime. Um, the the victims themselves are more hesitant to come forward and report it as a he- as a hate crime. Uh, the other is to start to prosecute um, more forcefully under hate hate crime legislation. Once we Uh, are able to identify these crimes as hate crimes. So I've asked them to look at past um, uh, criminal cases and review them um, to make sure that if they were hate crimes that they're official, that they're, you know, correctly classified as such. And um, Asian women and Asian elderly in particular are more vulnerable. Asian women have this stereotype of being much more meek and submissive. So they are the targets of hate crime and especially elderly Asian women are the target of hate crimes. And you'll see that these videos that you're seeing, a lot of them are against older Asian women and the bystanders do nothing to help. And that to me is something that we can all fix. We can all do something, say something, speak up and uh, oppose um, and and help out when you see something like that happening.
1: You had refused to vote in favor of Biden nominees until he named an Asian or Pacific Islander to a cabinet level post or I guess comparable though it's hard to kind of know what that would be. you backed off of that after the Biden White House agreed to appoint a senior API liaison. why though i I don't know that I'm clear on what this person would do at the White House. are you
2: Yes, yeah, so the that's the agreement. Um, the agreement is that they are going to p- appoint a a senior person in the West Wing, not just a regular you know staffer, but a senior person in the West wing that would help lead um, the effort to identify and nominate AAPIs to the top levels of government. That's the problem was there's not been anybody over there um, in the West Wing with that enough seniority to really push the case for AAPI uh, uh, candidates to be nominated. um, And nobody there to really say, hey, this is a real problem, Uh, you know, whatever topic is coming up um uh and so having this person there is going to be really critical and i'm already sent them a couple of great resumes of some folks who can who can do that and be that point person to really lead the effort to not only um identify but vet and and get these folks nominated to the highest levels of the biden administration and do you just want to
1: say a word or two about why it's so important to have this representation because you did receive some criticism for this move
2: did but you know it's again a lot of this is reflective of how differently APIs are treated in our country. Um, uh, I was not the one who actually said it, but it was you know I was angry because when I said, "Listen, you you promised that you would have an Asian American nominated to a cabinet level position. There isn't one. This is you know um, there's going to be the first time in 20 years that we have a president." Democrat or Republican who doesn't have an AAPI cabinet secretary. And that's not helpful at a time when we've gone through an entire year of Asians being targeted. Um, and the response I got was, well, we have Kamala, isn't that enough? And I said, and that's when I got angry. And I said, wait a minute, you know, Kamala is my girlfriend and, and she's as Asian as I am, she's biracial like, like I am, and she's wonderful. But you would never say to uh, you know, you would never say, Well, you have Kamala, we don't need any more African Americans nominated to the top levels of government. You wouldn't say we have a white male president. We can't, we shouldn't have, we don't need to have any more white males nominated to the top levels of government. Why would you say that about AAPIs? Hmm.
1: We're talking with U S Senator Tammy Duckworth and we'll go to more calls. Tony and Tracy join us. Hi, Tony.
0: Hi. Wow. Thank you. I'm, I'm honored to be on um, Senator Duckworth. I'm a huge fan um, I hope you take this as a compliment. You are truly my spirit animal. Um, The question I have, my father served in Korea. He was a Marine. And it wasn't until after he passed away that I realized that he probably probably suffered from pretty severe PTSD. If you're willing to talk about this, do you have any PTSD from the accident and how do you
3: cope with it?
2: Well, um, let me start off by saying that, uh, uh, Thank you for your father's service and the Korean War vets um, especially were overlooked for a long period of time in our nation's history. Um, we just, we, we, you know, it's called the Forgotten War. Um, so those vets certainly deserve our thanks um, for their sacrifices. As for PTSD, um, I've been working very hard to try to get veterans to recognize that post-traumatic stress, whether or not it's just post-traumatic stress or the full-blown disorder, is a wound of war. We have to look at it as an invisible wound, but no different than my amputations. That the, uh, the, the wound suffered by our veterans to their brains is equally important and equally deserving of healing. Uh, I myself in the book talk about there goes those ambulances again. Sorry, <laughs> folks. <laughs> um, the um, I and In the book, I do talk about the fact that I can't personally read um, a book about either Vietnam or Iraq and Afghanistan or watch a movie like the Hurt Locker all the way through. Cause if I, if I read or watch those um, uh, types of media, uh, I will close my eyes that night and go to sleep in my bed in Illinois and wake up in Iraq. And I will live an entire day in combat where I get up, I do the most mundane things. I brush my teeth. I go, I pre-flight my helicopter. I meet my crew. I fly a full days of mission, 10, 12, 14 hours, um, landing in all the LZs. It it is as if I live an entire full day. And then I go and I I hit my rack in my bunk in Iraq and I wake up and it's the next morning in Illinois and I am absolutely exhausted, but also elated. I'm elated because I've just relived an entire day of being a helicopter pilot with my men and I can't think of anything more joyous. And then immediately that is followed by grief and loss because then I remember, oh, that was just a dream. That's not real. This is me now. Um, And so for me, that's that's the form that it takes. I have to take a moment, acknowledge it, and then I just get on with doing what I need to do. But everybody is different. And when I was at VA, we coined the term, it takes the strength of a warrior to ask for help. So if you're a veteran and you are some, suffering from post-traumatic stress and you're listening to this broadcast, please, please call the VA, go to the webpage, ask for help.
1: Brent writes... As a writing teacher with combat veterans and trauma survivors, the value of reliving one's episodes through writing is one of the best forms of healing. It reframes and detoxes the past. Publishing, sharing, reading aloud to others is often cathartic. Intimacy is being known. We're talking with U.S. Senator Tammy Duckworth. You're listening to Forum. I'm Mina Kim. Senator Duckworth, you have this way of describing things that happened to you, both in the book and even listening to you now in such, um, it's, it's very matter of fact, very clear, very plain when each detail could be its own meditation is, is quite remarkable. And I couldn't help but wonder if that is in some way a survival mechanism that you developed, um, with, with all the struggles and challenges that you had.
2: Um, I guess, you know, I don't know, I I learned a lot writing the book. But I will tell you that I really benefited from recovering at Walter Reed, you know, my buddies who were not as badly wounded as I was in the war, came home, spent two weeks demobilizing, and then went straight home. And so they didn't have the time to process through everything like I did. And at Walter Reed, um, they were really good about asking you over and over and over again, "What happened? How do you feel?" So even though it wasn't a, a, a you know actual therapy session, all throughout the day, every day that I was there, whether it was the janitor or the cashier in the in the cafeteria or the nurse or the psychiatrist, every day I was asked to retell my story over and over and over again. Hmm. Um, and I talk about this in the book where it becomes. What happened to me becomes a chapter in my life, but not the chapter in my life. And, and so I learned to handle it. Because I, I speak about it matter, f- matter of factly because it has become that to me. This happened to me, but yes, it, it, it's a defining moment, um, but it's not the only moment in my life. And I think, you know, I was given that gift um, as a benefit of getting to recover at Walter Reed for 13 months.
1: This is Naraitz. How does the senator regard her Republican colleagues who still refuse to acknowledge and reject the toxic lie that the last election was stolen? Does she move on and seek unity regardless? This listener's question reminds me of an interview. I believe it was an NPR story that mentioned that you said after it was a question about the insurrection and whether or not the insurrection would cause Republicans to to change their minds about the election and how they communicated about it. And I was struck by what you said. You said, I don't know that they disbelieved the results of the election. You said that maybe some of them are realizing the enormity of appealing to those who believe in conspiracy theories and the damaging effects it has on our democracy and our institutions. Where are you with that? Do you think that that is actually happening in terms of realizing the enormous risks of doing that?
2: Well, I think that there are some of my colleagues who recognize the damage that's done when you support the conspiracy theories and you appeal to that. But unfortunately, um, I think we're at a point now where, you know, the Republican, my Republican colleagues who would stand up and say, you know, and, and, and counter the conspiracy theories, um, you could probably count the number of them on, you know, on the, on one hand. Unfortunately, I think most of my Republican colleagues are buckling to um, this, this group within the Republican Party that has hijacked it um, that has really been encouraged by Donald Trump and that Donald Trump continues to try to stoke um, in order to achieve his own personal ends. And, and that's really sad to me. But I'm going to try, you know, I'm going to try to keep working with my colleagues. But I, I sometimes I sort of wonder, how, how do you, you know, how, for example, how do you not vote for a bill that says that it's just simple resolution against hate crimes, against AAPIs, um, and, and condemns the use of hateful rhetoric like kung flu virus. How do you vote against that? And some do. So, you know, you do the best you can. You show up. You try to find common ground where you can. Um, but it is hard. It is hard right now.
1: Well, let me see if I can get one last call in. And this is from Michelle in Campbell. Hi, Michelle.
3: Hi, can you hear me?
1: I can. Go right ahead.
3: Hello? Yep, can you we hear can me? hear you.
1: Mm-hmm.
4: You're
3: on. Oh, you can. Okay, great. Um, I taught for the nursing at the VA for five years. I took clinical groups in at the private school. And I also served in the Gulf War in a tent hospital in the desert. And the quality of health care at the VA is so poor. The, the you know the old facilities, for just the normal people, people like you who have serious, you know, the paralyzed people, they have excellent care. But for the vast a majority of people. In fact, there was a nurse there that said she was just there for a job. I met her in Palo Alto at a workshop, and she's and I basically wrote her a note and said, if you cannot help these and be sensitive and not be burned out, you need to leave this job. But there's and when I was at the VA, there was a another receptionist who was walking down the hall who was having problems because she wasn't doing her job, and she said. Someone take my job, I take their life. And
1: so, Michelle, I'm so sorry. We only have seconds left. Did you have a question for, for the senator about what you've experienced?
3: To improve the VA, whenever you have veteran uh, VA people on KQED, they're flooded lines. So what is going on? That could-
1: mm. Senator Duckworth, uh, in terms of improving the VA, especially at the level that Michelle is talking about.
2: Well, you know, one of the things that we did to, to help improve it was mandatory funding for VA health care for veterans. Um, that happened under the Obama administration, and that certainly improved most of the VAs. Uh, and we're still going through and, and, and fixing them. I will tell you that the v, quality of VA health care over the past 10 years has become significantly better. I still go to VA for my health care, and not just for my amputations, but I go there for my women's health clinic appointments, for example. I get my annual pap smear there. Um, And so I I actually go and I and I I go through the process um, like all the other veterans and and watch and make sure that it's that it's good. But um, if somebody is not getting good VA care, they need to absolutely call their congressman, call their senators so that we know so that we can come in and see what the problem is. Um, But I will tell you that President Biden is uniquely, uniquely as a military family member um, dedicated to supporting veterans. and, And so is Dr. Biden.
1: Well, Senator Tammy Duckworth, really appreciated having you on. Also appreciate Susan Britton and Grace One for producing this segment. And thanks to our listeners. This is Forum.
4: Funds for the production of Forum are provided by the
2: members of KQED Public Radio and the Germanicos Foundation and the Generosity Foundation.
0: Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera.